You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. I've had a working hypothesis for quite a while now that stories about the devil tell us as much about an author's priorities as anything else that given author writes. Milton's devils, and especially his version of Satan, lead a reader into some profound worries about the powers of rhetoric and reason. Goethe's Mephistopheles can't seem to keep up with the grand ambition of Heinrich Faust, and his attempts at temptation are farcical compared to the grandeur of the great man's desires. And nobody who reads C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters can mistake the features of 20th century life that stand as the Oxford Don's pet peeves. Now, Bart Ehrman, in his new book, Journeys into Heaven and Hell, examines a different kind of a story, a set of narratives in which the living have a look at what awaits the dead, and discovers a similar kind of dynamic. What's magnified on the other side tells some fascinating stories about the struggles of this side. And I'm glad that he's joining us on Christian Humanist Profiles today to talk about some of those stories. Bart, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. We're going to be using the term catabasis as we talk today, so start with that. Does that Greek noun appear concurrently with the text we're going to be talking about, or is it a later scholarly category? And is it a reference and inversion of Xenophon's Anabasis story? And what family resemblances will these texts share? Yeah. So uh, yeah. So the term catabasis is a it's a Greek it's a Greek term that comes from antiquity. Uh, it it literally means going down. Um, so katabino means to go down, <laughs> and it is closely related to Xenophon's anabasis because anabasis means going up. Uh, in Xenophon's case, he's not talking about uh, going up to the uh, upper realm, to the to the heavenly realms. He's talking about his, his uh, military uh, exploits. Uh, but uh, in this particular case, it comes to be a technical term. Um, in it does occur in antiquity. The, it becomes in the modern world. It becomes a uh, scholarly, uh, technical term for this particular kind of story where somebody goes down uh, into the realms of the dead. Now, of course, a lot of these uh, stories of those going down to the realms of the dead involves also going up, <laughs> because if you've got heaven and hell. But it, 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 the original, the reason for calling it Tavisus probably is because the first version of the story that we have in the Western tradition is uh, Odysseus, who goes down to Hades, uh, because in the Odyssey, there, there's not a heaven above and a hell below, but there's just Hades. And so that sets the model for the rest of the Western tradition. And so scholars tend to call it, uh, tend to call it Katab- the whole tradition Katabasis. Very good. Well, let's, let's run with uh, Odysseus for a moment. Uh, he has particular purposes uh, to go into Hades. Uh, so, I mean, what does he hear from his own mother? What does he hear from Achilles? What does he hear from his, uh, you know, his father and, you know, not his father, but, uh, from other folks there in Hades. I, 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 I switched, uh, Virgil in there for a moment. Sorry. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> it's, okay. it's easy to do. Yeah. Um, right. So Odysseus, so this is right in the middle of the Odyssey. Uh, Homer's uh, second work. Uh, the Odyssey is about Odysseus's 10-year voyage to try to get home from the Trojan War. And he meets all sorts of obstacles and uh, things happen to him. And about halfway through, 
he's on a uh, he's on an island of a, uh, a kind of a divine being who uh, Cersei who tells him that that he needs to go to the underworld to get advice about his return home from a dead prophet Tiresias. And uh, she gives him directions about how to get there. And they sail <laughs> to the west and they go. Uh, he finds the entrance and he goes down into uh, goes down into Hades in order to search for Tiresias. Um, while he's there, the, the whole episode isn't about Tiresias so much. He's really kind of a, just a reason for him, Odysseus, to get down there. But once he's there, he does see these other people that you're referring to. And that's really the point of this narrative is uh, by meeting these other people, his beloved ones and his his beloved mother, at least, and his some companions and other people there, he, he realizes what the afterlife is all about. Uh, and it's not good. <laughs> so in, in, the Greek, in the Greek tradition, including in the Odyssey, Hades is not a place of punishment. It's not like uh, the later Christian view of hell where there's fire and such, but it's, it's simply the place that, where people depart, their souls depart, um, their spirits depart when they die, their body dies, but their other kind of the inner being lives on. But the inner part being doesn't have any material existence. And so there's no, no pleasure and no pain. Uh, they can't even talk. <laughs> they, there's nothing there. It's just like a, a boring existence for all eternity. And so when he meets his mother, he tries to uh, he, he, you know, they have a discussion about, he wants to know how she got here. <laughs> like, how did he, he didn't know she had died. And she wanted to know, well, what are you doing here? You're not dead yet. And so they have a discussion, but he tries to hug her uh, three times. It's a very, very powerful scene. He tries to hug her three times and his arms go through her just as if she was smoke. And so she can't, there's no substance there. And then he meets with um, Achilles, who's the greatest hero in Greek history, this mighty man uh, who is so weak and pathetic that he, he says, uh, when he's talking to Achilles, Achilles says that he would, he would much rather be a, uh, a servant, a field hand to some peasant working on the upper ground than to be the king of the, uh, of the underworld. Uh, and so this is not a place you want to go. And that's really the point in the Odyssey is that should you strive for uh, fame and reputation, even if it means fighting to the death in the battlefield, or should, should you try to keep living as long as you can? <laughs> and I think, I think the answer is, yeah, keep living. And it's interesting, the strong emphasis on memory and on glory in Iliad really gives way to that, to that yeah. emphasis on persistence in the Odyssey. And, and, you know, the, the shift is so mm -hmm. powerful that, you know, we're going to talk about Plato at length later, but uh, in the Republic, I mean, you know, Socrates would excise all of these parts because he doesn't <laughs> want the soldiers on the battlefield thinking, well, I certainly don't want to die. I'm not going to stay in this battle. So, I, <laughs> you know, it's. Yeah, well, it is a stark contrast. If, if uh, listeners know about the Iliad and the Odyssey, that they, this is a stark point of uh, a difference and it's hard to know what to make of it in terms of you know did homer kind of change his mind does he tell different stories for different occasions or what but um the in the iliad the whole point is to achieve uh fame and renown and glory even if it means uh going down in battle and in the odyssey odysseus realizes that in fact a much greater good than renown is um is being uh, is having a home and a family and property and a long life. And so in the Iliad, Achilles rejects the idea of a long life 
of happiness for fame. And in the Odyssey, uh, Odysseus strives for the long life with the family at home over fame. We're going to return to Plato in a while, like I said, but let's let's uh, let's go to Virgil now, uh, because, you know, his is the chief model for Dante's famous and rightly famous Catavasis narrative. Virgil scenes jumps back and forth between something like Platonism and something like an imperial eschatology, and it's never really coherent. Uh, but all the same, let's give our listeners a, a flavor of Catavasis that's different from Homer's pessimism. Uh, but still isn't exactly a, a promise of reward for everyone. Yeah, that's right. So Virgil is, so Homer is usually dated to the 8th century BCE, and Virgil is writing during the reign of Augustus, uh, uh, Caesar Augustus. And so we're talking, you know, about uh, many centuries later and in a different part of the world. Now he's now to Rome instead of Greece, and there's a whole different set of understandings about the world and what really matters. And one of the things that's happened between Homer and uh, Virgil is that the Greek and Roman worlds have been infiltrated with certain kinds of uh, Greek thinking, Greek philosophical thought, including what you're referring to, Plato. Uh, in the Platonic system that we'll get to in a little bit, the idea is that the uh, after death, it's not the same for everyone because um, uh, that's not fair. <laughs> People who are uh, really upright uh, beings who uh, live the way they should live uh, are rewarded, and those who are schmucks get punished. <laughs> and so there's rewards and punishment. So Virgil, Virgil in the Aeneid has an account of a catabasis that is absolutely modeled on uh, the Odyssey, uh, self-consciously modeled on the Odyssey. But in this case, Aeneas um, uh, sees that there are uh, that there are different realms of the afterlife depending on how a person lived, and so some people are in Tartarus, which would be like the Christian hell, where they're being tortured forever for uh, being real miscreants. Um, <clears throat> most people are uh, not there, but they are um, they're they're in a kind of a temporary. Uh, uh, holding place where they're being punished for uh, for their sins, uh, and uh, they uh, they go through this long kind of purgatory kind of like existence while their sins are purged from them, uh, and then but some people uh, are just sent right to the blessed fields, <laughs> you know, the Elysian fields, and they live there forever, and so um, not many of those. But uh, but so that's Virgil. That's Virgil's account. And Virgil's going down again to see somebody. In this case, he's going to see his father, uh, who is who has died recently, and to talk with his father. And his father lays out what what this what this whole situation is, and he and he sees it as well. Very good. Well, let's turn to some Christian and Jewish texts. Uh, you note that the monotheism of these texts changes the character of the underworld. Uh, because in these texts, the ultimate powers that govern life and death is personal, and because that divine person demands particular ways of life from mortals, the punishments tend to be retributive rather than purgatorial. So how does that difference play out in First Enoch's Book of the Watchers? So, um, yeah, once you get to... so. Once you get to the monotheistic systems, this, I mean, starting in Judaism to some extent, but then really crystallizing in, in uh, later later in Christianity, um, it's um, there. There's a there's a different deal going on, which is that there's a there's a judge of all. 
Now there is a judge in Greek and Roman thought. There are judges in the underworld and all that. But right. but Minus, ultimately, Minos most notably. Yeah, yeah, Minos is down there. Judge, and it was not, not really clear. It's a kind of a shady character. We're not really quite shady in the sense we're not really sure what's going on. Um, but in the in the Jewish and Christian traditions, of course, there's a God who has uh, created the world and given humans uh, either the moral code or the law and uh, obedience to what God wants is the uh, criterion by which one's afterlife is decided. And so in First Enoch, uh, First Enoch is unusual. Uh, so First Enoch is not one of the biblical books. It's an apocryphal book that was very, uh, is well known in antiquity and was popular in some Christian circles as well. It has a, uh, a very interesting scene in which uh, Enoch is shown the realms of the dead who are awaiting final judgment. Um, throughout, mo I should preface this by saying that throughout most of the he throughout the Hebrew Bible, there's not an afterlife. There's not uh, in the sense of there's not like a life for most of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, there's not a life after death. There's just life, and so. Uh, people mistake that because they think that Sheol uh, in the Hebrew Bible is like Hades in the Greek tradition, but it's really not. The Sheol is a place where you get buried. <laughs> and so it's like your grave or your tomb. Um, but when, once you get to First Enoch, you get the idea that there's going to be a final judgment. Uh, this is part of the apocalyptic tradition, which says that, you know, uh, those who keep the law are going to be rewarded. And, you know, often they aren't in this life, but they will be after in the afterlife. And so you start developing the idea that there will be some kind of afterlife, but it'll involve a final judgment. And that's what you get then in First Enoch. You have he goes to he he's seeing these these he's seeing realms above. Uh, he's taken up. It's an anabasis, and he see and he sees this mountain that has these four kind of gi gigantic holding pens or pits in them, and they've got they're for different kinds of souls. Um, some of them, uh, one of them is bright with flowing water, and it seems very pleasant. And the other three, yeah, not. <laughs> and so they, they're for different kinds of sinners and what kind of level they're at. Uh, but they're awaiting what's going to come to them in the end. And the assumption is pretty much that what's going to happen in the end will be a, a kind of a permanent uh, in, uh, incorporation of, the, of, of what's there, what's happening temporarily now in these three pits. All right. We're going to turn to uh, a couple catabasis uh, narratives that you spend a lot of time on in the book. But before we do, I want to talk about a couple. I want you to talk about a couple of uh, technical terms. Uh, what are the main differences between textual variations of a text and then versions of a text when scholars dispute these things? And what counts as evidence when scholars are trying to establish that a given artifact is a variation or it is a version. <laughs> yeah, okay, we're getting down there in the weeds now. Good. <laughs> so this is actually it's a big deal even for people who study the uh, just just the New Testament because there's a difference between two uh, two versions of a book and and editorial which would involve editorial changes by somebody who's trying to publish a new edition right. versus scribes who are copying the book who make changes. And on one level, they're very, very similar, of course, uh, because in either case, you have some person other than the original author altering the text. Usually a version is an intentional attempt to recreate a text in order to uh, to uh, to to represent it in a different form. And so it's usually a more thoroughgoing 
uh, editing process. It's completely intentional and it's meant to create a better version of what was there before. And so, um, so we have lots of accounts in the ancient world that probably went through multiple versions. And, uh, and so, you know, you actually, you get it, you even get it today. Sometimes, you know, Charles Dickens will publish uh, Great Expectations with a different ending, <laughs> right, <laughs> two right. endings, right? Yes. So, well, that that's a different version. That, that wasn't some copyist of Dickens, like decided, yeah, you know, I actually think they should get married or shouldn't get married, should get married. You know, not, it's not like Dickens himself is doing it. So that's a new version. Um, you could argue in the New Testament that Matthew is a different version from Mark. You know, it'd be a stretch, but it's that kind of thing where somebody's coming along, taking something and, and then actually reproducing it. A scribal alteration is when somebody's copying the thing and they just change it. Uh, a lot of time, usually it's by accident, like they just leave out a line or they uh, they or they think the word should be that word and they change it. Or So that's a scribe simply making arbitrary ad hoc changes. Um, and that happens, of course, in in all ancient literature uh, that we have, because ancient literature has been handed down to us by scribes until the invention of printing with movable press in the 15th century. So that every manuscript, every every text we have from antiquity has had scribal changes, but a number of them have also come out in multiple editions. And so that's a different thing. Very good. Now, with those terms in place, uh, talk a little bit about the key differences between the Apocalypse of Peter on one hand and the Gospel of Peter on the other hand that are going to be characters in the story that unfolds. Um, starting descriptive, before we begin to evaluate, what do some texts of these two Peter books have that other texts of these Peter books lack? Yeah, okay. So it's a long story, uh, but a really interesting one. Uh, in the, uh, in the uh, 1880s, uh, some French archeologists uncovered a, uh, they were digging in a cemetery in Egypt and they, near a place called um, uh, Akhmim, and they uncovered a tomb that had a, the, the person had been buried with a book. Uh, it's a 66 page book written in Greek, and it's a small anthology of texts. Um, the three main texts, there's four texts, but one is kind of an add-on, but the three main ones are, uh, there's a version of part of First Enoch that we were just talking about, and there's a gospel of Peter uh, in other words, a gospel written by, allegedly written by Simon Peter, Jesus' disciple, and an apocalypse uh, of Peter. Uh, a, 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 it's a catabasis account. It's an account of Peter uh, visiting the realms of the dead. When this book was discovered, it made a huge, uh, made a huge impact. Interestingly, the two texts that people were most interested in to begin with were the uh, were for the first Enoch and the apocalypse of Peter. Um, Today, I think more, more people are interested in the Gospel of Peter because people are really interested in these alternative Gospels, and this is a very important one. Um, we had known that there was a Gospel of Peter uh, because of ancient sources. The church, church father, Eusebius, uh, describes an episode involving the Gospel of Peter where an Orthodox church father ended up declaring that it was not a uh, sufficiently Orthodox text and prescribed its use. And after that, it kind of disappeared from sight. People don't talk about it much after that. Um, but now all of a sudden they find this gospel, Peter, uh, they find it. <laughs> it's, it's not an entire thing. It's a fragmentary thing. We're missing the beginning and we're missing the end. But we have the middle part, which is about the trial and the execution and the 
uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's an amazing, amazing account. Uh, and so, uh, but then you had this apocalypse of Peter, which is a description that we also knew about of Peter being shown the realms of the blessed and the damned. And the reason this one is particularly important is because for the first several centuries, for the first 300 years uh, of Christianity, there were, there were people who, were, who thought this was part of the scriptures. They thought this was an inspired text that should be included in the canon, this apocalypse of Peter. In the fourth century, we have church fathers who say it belongs in the canon. <laughs> and so uh, it's, well, that's important. Uh, but it ended up being uh, eliminated from consideration and it also disappeared until it was uh, more or less disappeared from, from our site. So, um, so you have these two things, but, the, but what ended up happening in the history of scholarship is after this apocalypse of Peter is found, this Greek version, uh, some years later, they realized we have an Ethiopic version uh, in Ethiopic and the Ethiopic version, even though it was originally written in Greek, it sure looks like this Ethiopic version represents the older form of the text, by which I mean it went through two editions, at least two editions. And the addition behind the Greek form of the text appears to be a later form of the text from the Greek form that was behind the Ethiopic translation. See, this, gets kind of, kind of, this does get in the weeds. It's kind of complicated. But then they found two little fragments of a Greek manuscript that came from the Apocalypse of Peter. And these two, which were earlier in date, these Greek fragments were earlier in date from either of the other two manuscripts. And it was more like the Ethiopic version which showed that the Ethiopic version probably is the older form of the text. All right. Well, so that's kind of complicated, but that's, <laughs> I'm not sure I answered your question. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, 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 you know, really that question is to set up this question, uh, you know, as we reconstruct this history of variations and versions, and this is why I wanted to get those terms out there. Yeah. We see a kind of theological con uh, contest playing out in the, editorial processes in the scribal processes i'm probably using anachronisms here but roll with me uh what kinds of ideas do we see being contested in these different versions and these different variations on the apocalypse of peter yeah so uh i'll give you the short story on this which is uh there there are significant differences between the ethiopic version the uh the, the one that people think are basically older and the uh and the greek version um, one of the differences uh, is whether the punishments are, uh, are going to happen in the future or whether they're happening now. In other words, is this about what's going to happen after the last judgment, uh, which is the Jewish apocalyptic view that at the end of time, there'll be a, a judgment day and people then will face their eternal reward or punishment. Is it something that's going to happen after that? Or is it something happens now that you, you die and your soul goes to heaven or hell? That later view that you die and your soul goes to heaven or hell is the it's the dominant view today. Even though Christian, most Christian, many Christian, many Christians will say, well, yeah, there will be a last judgment. But that's always kind of a secondary thing. It's you die and your soul goes to heaven or hell. That's a later understanding of how it works within Christianity. The earlier view was that judgment day is coming soon. You know, Jesus is coming back in this generation is going to happen and there'll be a judgment. And so it's interesting that you hit both views, depending on which apocalypse of Peter you read <laughs> in the, in the, in the Ethiopic version, which represents the earlier version, the idea is that it's going to have, there's going to be a judgment day. 
And so what Peter is seeing, Peter is taken to the realms. He sees what's happening to the people who are being tormented. And he sees all the tortures for the different kinds of sinners. And it's all graphically described. It's really quite interesting. And then he sees the realm of the blessed where everything's fantastic for all eternity. And But in the Ethiopic version, this is what he's seeing what's going to happen in the future. In the Greek version, he's seeing what's happening now. Uh, the, the people died and there's, this is what's happening to their souls uh, now. And so uh, that's one difference. But the other very big difference is... Um, that in this Ethiopic, uh, in, 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 the, in both versions, actually, there was, there was a, uh, it looks like both versions are based on a, another, how do I say this? They both are different versions of an original. It's not that one is taken one right from the other. There was an original form of the text that got changed uh, in both of those versions because the original version indicated that in the end, everybody's getting out of hell right right so there's a common ancestor that both of them reject yeah so what ends up the original version gets transformed into what's now the ethiopic version and then what's in the ethiopic version gets translated into the firm that's in the longer Achmean greek edition so it's a yeah <laughs> multiple editions yeah yeah so i mean you know that's really the the, the dispute i i had actually forgotten about the you know the the present journey of the soul versus the uh, age to come journey of the soul dispute. I was thinking about the universalism part. Uh, and, you know, when you examine this, I mean, you know, this dispute between universalism and what David Bentley Hart calls infernalism, uh, you know, plays out in this editorial process. Um, and what's interesting, what I found most interesting, I think, uh, is that waiting in the wings, if you will. And again, I'm using dramatic metaphors here because I'm getting ready to teach Shakespeare in the fall. Uh, but, you know, uh, Waiting in the Wings uh, is another book that we know as Second Peter that really hasn't been part of Christian worship, but it makes its entrance in the wake of the universalist controversies of the age of origin and whatnot. So uh, I realize this also is a long story, and that's why all of our listeners are going to go and get your book and read it. But tell us the short version of it. How did Second Peter get that boost from Origin of Alexandria? Right. So, so in my book, what I try, one of the things I try to explain in one of my chapters is why the apocalypse of Peter did not make it in the canon. Um, because, you know, when it, it, in the second, third centuries, it was more popular than a lot of books that did make it in, including second Peter. Second Peter's never mentioned. <laughs> I mean, in the, in the early, you know, early years of the church, the church fathers don't even seem to know about second Peter. And even into the fourth century, you have uh, Orthodox church fathers like Didymus the Blind who say Second Peter's a forgery, and he says it. You know, it's forged. <laughs> it's not really by Peter. And so there are debates about Second Peter. Whereas the Apocalypse of Peter, going back to uh, authors like uh, Clement of Alexandria, for example, thinks that it's part of Scripture, and it's in. And so it's in some canon list as being, and that people think it's part of Scripture. And so, but so. By the four, in the fourth century, though, all of a sudden the apocalypse of Peter drops out of sight, and Second Peter gets into the canon. And so I have a chapter trying to explain how that happened and why. I mean, what? And so what my argument is is that it does have to do with this issue of universalism, 
that. Um, uh, so you mentioned Origen. Origen of Alexandria is an early third century church father, the greatest theologian before Augustine, the most significant theologian of the first 300 years by far, even though he later came to be declared uh, a heretic. Uh, in part, in, in large part, he was declared a heretic in later centuries because he held to a view of universalism that everybody will in the end be saved. And what really got, what really got under people's ner on people's nerves is that when he said every, everyone will be saved, he meant everyone, the demons and the devil. <laughs> and for ancient Christians, that's like saying, you know, Hitler is going to be saved. Anyone else, and they, they ain't going to be Hitler. Precisely, precisely. <laughs> and, yeah, so, yeah. and so, but Origen said, look, God is sovereign and nobody can resist his will forever. And eventually everybody's going to realize they're wrong even the devil. And so, uh, and so he saw it as a matter of the sovereignty of God, but later people said, no, no, not the devil. And so the, but uh, Origen had this view. And in the fourth century, it came under serious dispute in what's known as the originist controversy over uh, Origen's teachings. And uh, the Orthodox tradition moved away from Origen, which is why they ended up declaring him a heretic. And uh, the Apocalypse of Peter, what I argue in my book, is that the reason the Apocalypse of Peter uh, uh, faced its demise was because it embraced a universalistic view. Uh, and so, uh, that, so that, that, that's, part of, that's part of my argument. And Second Peter, on the other hand, is quite emphatic that those who are opposed uh, to God are going to be judged uh, and judge violently. And so there's no salvation for those who are opposed to God. So I think, you know, if this apocalypse of Peter, that's not going to happen, but they, they know about the second Peter and they will actually, this supports our view. And so it ends up, uh, ends up getting into the canon. Very good. Uh, well, you, you, uh, you had a bit of a laugh earlier because I got a little bit technical since I've got you on the microphone, I want to get technical again, because okay. one lexical point that, that fascinated me in this book is uh, the idea that the Ethiopic version of the Apocalypse of Peter uh, turns these punishments into eternal punishments. And here's the reason I bring this up, because I know that in some texts, the Latin cyclum seems to refer to something like an unending age, but Augustine alters it so that it spans only the age between creation and the return of Christ, or the fall and the return of Christ, depending on where in Augustine you're reading. And likewise, the, the, the Greek nouns uh, Ionios and Ionion, or adjectives, however you render them, can refer to a long but a limited time, or in the hands of Pythagorean and Platonic writers, it can come to signify a non-temporal mode of existence, right? So there's a definite change in how these words signify what they refer to. Um, I don't know a lick of Ethiopic. So when you discuss the Ethiopic text of the Apocalypse of Peter, um, when you say that the punishments become eternal, is that adjective a pretty fixed signifier in Ethiopic, or is it moving around the way that those Latin and Greek words are? I think the issue in this case is not what the particular Ethiopic word is, but what the Greek word is that it's translating. Ah, because, okay, okay. Yeah. And so, uh, and what I would say is that these terms, it's not that there's a linear development in the meaning of these terms. In other words, it's not that, you know, in uh, this year it meant with this thing and then, you know, 200 years later it meant a different thing. What ends up happening is many of these words can have multiple meanings uh, depending on, at the same time. 
So it's that the, the meaning itself isn't fixed. It's, right. it's, that that so is it, a better way to put that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it's, it's an important point because some words do change over time, but the, these particular words, it's, it, they, they can mean different things depending on the context. And so always in the context, uh, always in the context, it matters. You, you have to examine the literary context to understand what, what it means. And so, um, the issue is that this term, uh, that the term that gets translated as forever, um, the other, uh, the other way of understanding it might be, uh, instead of forever, it might mean continuous. Okay. And so, um, like, uh, if you say, you know, that dog never stopped, stopped barking. Right, right. You, you, you don't mean that it went on for trillions of years, right? You mean that there's, and um, you know, but if you say God never ends, <laughs> you know, you so it's so you look at it in the context, and in the context, it's completely clear. What happens is this is it's an important point for understanding this difference between the Ethiopic and the Greek, because the scholars have long argued that the uh, Apocalypse of Peter describes never ending torment so that it can't have any universalistic component to it and so that universalistic component they this is the argument that universalistic component was not original it was added because oh interesting okay because it uh, it says that it happens that this punishment happens forever and so that that was a good argument except uh, i actually looked up <laughs> I, I did a very detailed comparison and uh, uh, the um, uh, these Greek fragments that have the older form of the text from the Ethiopic. So the Ethiopic's older than the Greek Akmeme, but these Greek fragments are older than the Ethiopic. Okay, got it? <laughs> so far, so, so good. Yep. So, so there's overlap between these Greek fragments and the Ethiopic, and, in, and a number of those places are places where Ethiopic says that the punishments will be forever. That's not found in the Greek fragments which means right. okay. the earliest version of this did not have the forever language. The Ethiopic added it. And so the Ethiopic added the forever language and it got rid of the universalism. As, right. the, as the, yeah, okay, see what I mean? So it yeah. did both things at once because it, they reinforce each other. See, it, gets, it, it adds forever, gets rid of the universalism, but the original verm didn't have any forever and it had universalism. Right, right. And, and you know, it's interesting. Another comparison that you get to in the book is between Origins universalism and the Apocalypse of Peter's universalism. One of them is rooted in the ironclad, I'll go ahead and use the word eternal logic of uh, divine sovereignty. That would be Origins version. Whereas, I mean, in the Apocalypse of Peter, and I mean, honestly, this is, uh, I could imagine it being both controversial, both more controversial, but I would also say, I mean, more resonant with a text like Exodus 32, uh, it is the prayers of the saints that uh, appeal to God and change God's mind so that God relents in God's punishment. Yeah, no, that's right. And it's, it's very, very interesting because uh, theologically, it can be seen as highly problematic that like God's bound to determine to punish these people forever. But finally, you know, he yields, okay. And he kind of lets them off, you know, but that's one way to kind of look at it. And that but might I mean, sound... Jesus has parables to that effect. 
That, Jesus does. It's throughout the entire Bible. Yeah, Abra- yeah. I mean, in Genesis, Abraham talks God down, right, about Sodom and Gomorrah. Absolutely, like, absolutely. You know, so, yeah. so, and the whole point of intercessory prayer is that, you know, God listens to you and changes what's going to happen. And so that's right, the whole, right. so you might think it's theologically problematic, but it's very, impo- it's very important it's, in the Christian it's, it's tradition. It's very rooted in worship. <laughs> but that's right. But the other, but the other issue that's involved is that the the reason people get saved in origin is because God is ultimately sovereign and his will will be done. But in editions like the, the Apocalypse of Peter, the reason everybody gets saved is because ultimately God is merciful. Um, it isn't about his sovereignty so much as about his mercy. And, uh, and so it celebrates the, the grandeur of, of that aspect of the divine beings. And so, uh, yeah. So, uh, but it is different. And in my book, I lay out actually other ways of people doing universalism. There, right. there, there right. are a variety of ways, and it's becoming a popular view in some Christian circles today, but it does go, it was never, it never, ever. People think about it as being the, um, kind of, at one time, the majority view. It was never the majority view. <laughs> it was always wide, uh, very much on the margins, but those on the margins had different ways of explaining it. I got you. I got you. And I'll let you and David Bentley Hart work that out. I, 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 oh, no, I, I'm telling you. I, no, I know. He's not the only one. I mean, there's scholars, but uh, it, it is it is decidedly uh, not. It is, yeah. And, and by the way, listeners, David uh, Bentley Hart did come on the show to talk about that book, uh, That All Shall Be Saved. Uh, I actually didn't write down the episode number, but you can go to the website and find that. I want to turn back to... Uh, a, another philosophical catabasis, because I think it, it provides a really nice point of contrast to this so that we can see not only that these stories are a little bit different, but they are radically different. So uh, let's talk for a moment about uh, the ethical particularity of Lucian or Lucian, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Uh, his version is rooted in cynical philosophy. How does it differ from Christian underworld journeys specifically on the questions of wealth and the poor, because I think this is a, a fascinating point of contrast between Christian and philosophical catabasis narratives. Yeah, it is very interesting. And so uh, I pronounce it Lu- Lucian or Lucian, Lucian of Samosata. Uh, yeah, I, I was taught by a Virgilian, so I... Well, <laughs> well, there it is. Well, well, when, I, when I say Lucian, I can feel his disapproving stare. I know. Did, 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 he, did he teach you to say Kikoro instead oh, of Cicero? Did indeed. He did indeed. He, there you go. He, he not only taught, but insisted on Kikoro. Yes. <laughs> there you go. All right. So, uh, right. So, uh, Lucian of Samosata is a, um, uh, a, a Greek author, a fantastic author. If people like satire, if they like, like you know, if they like Voltaire, <laughs> so Lucian Samosata is a satirist, and he wrote a number of dialogues. And he, what he's trying to do is to try and um, he, he he's making fun of the way what people think and what they and how they act, basically. And he's trying to show there's a better way. And he has some dialogues where um, people go to the realms of the dead. And they see what it's like. And one of the constant themes in these uh, dialogues is that those who are fabulously wealthy are um, uh, are going to be, uh, you know, everything's going to be taken away from them when they die because you don't take anything with you. And they end up being absolutely miserable, whereas people who are poor, they die Actually, things are better down here. <laughs> you know, right, right. at least I'm not starving to death and freezing, and it's like it's not bad. <laughs> and so the contrast is those who are poor have it better off, and those who are rich. And so it's a reversal. 
Um, Lucian's point in this is not what's going to happen in the afterlife. In other words, he doesn't really think this is what's going to happen. What he's doing is he's telling stories that try to il, uh, illuminate what really matters in life. Are you really going to put your trust in riches? You think that's going to make you happy? What happens when somebody steals it all? Or what happens if you happiness is in your house? What happens when it burns down? You know, then you're miserable. The, the way not to be miserable is not to put your value in things that can be taken away from you. That's a philosophical view that uh, it's, a, it's called cynicism. Does, so the cynics were people who believed in, in getting rid of all the material trappings of life so that they could be happy, which is just the opposite of what people think. So Lucian uses his, he, there's a catabasis that he has um, that, uh, that's called the cataplis or the tyrant, which is about this, about this tyrant who's filthy rich and powerful and all that, who dies, and he can't stand the idea of being dead. He's, and he keeps trying to escape to get back. And <laughs> in contrast to this cobbler, this guy who makes shoes is like poor as dirt, and it really kind of likes it down here. <laughs> and so, so, but the point is, you know, is, is that, you know, where do you want to put your value? Um, in the Christian tradition, there also is discussion of wealth. So the moral problem that wealth presents for Christians is different from what it presented to the cynics. For the cynics, the problem with wealth is it's gonna make you unhappy, even though you think the opposite, but you're wrong about that. It's gonna make you unhappy. For Christians, the problem is you have the poor people among you and you're filthy rich and you're not helping them, but God is the God of the poor. And you you are to, you're to give your, resources to those who are in need. And the benefit is not personal happiness in this life so much as it is that if you do that, you'll have treasures in heaven. And that, uh, and so this is based, of course, on Jesus' own teachings, uh, give away all everything so you'll have treasures in heaven. And this becomes a motif in uh, Christianity. And there are catabases that deal with this particular issue. And so you know, at the same time that Lucian's writing in the second century, we have a uh, we have an apocryphal account of the of Thomas, the missionary to India, who is a, it's a legendary account about him going to India, and but the the king who's brought him to India to help to build a palace for for himself is um, for for the king is uh, has uh, his brother has a near death experience. And real, and in this near-death experiences, he sees the fantastic mansions preserved for those who give away their riches, and uh, and so he's convinced. Then the the king and the king's brother are convinced to give their stuff away so that they'll have treasures in heaven. And so in both cases, a catabasis, a, a, a fictional account of somebody going to the realms of the dead, is being used in order to show the problems of being wealthy. But in the uh, in the pagan tradition, the problem is it's going to make you unhappy in the long run. And in the Christian tradition, it means you're not worshiping the God of the poor. And uh, and so it really will affect your afterlife. And so I have a chapter where I kind of contrast those two things and talk about the catabases involved. Very good. Very good. And our listeners who spend time with Dante, and that's a lot of our listeners, will will hear how uh, the Inferno and especially the Purgatorio kind of blend elements of those two philosophical outlooks. Uh, you know, it is a, a deeply, well, I mean, the purgatory is deeply concerned with the formation of the soul and the formation of the soul only happens in relationship to the poor. 
So both of those elements are in there. And uh, I, I know your book is not about Dante, but I make everything about Dante. No, no, but so I, well, I, <laughs> I know I do bring up Dante in the book because, you know, when I talk about this Apocalypse of Peter discovered in the, in the 1880s, it's the earliest Christian forerunner of Dante. And it was the source for the later Apocalypse of Paul, which Dante knew. Uh, and that right, uh, that affected right. Dante. So that's right. And so, uh, yeah. But, you know, this idea that it's, it's that the soul is shaped in relationship to the poor, um, this emphasis on the poor is a completely Christian innovation in the West. Right. Uh, right. And so my my next book, actually, I'm writing a book now that is on that about how charity is a Christian invention in the West. Uh, it's not a Christian invention because they pick it up from the Jews, but it, it's, yeah, so uh, it becomes extremely important. And the afterlife then begins a way, begins to be a way to talk about what matters in this life, especially these issues of wealth and poverty. Very good. You dedicate a chapter to the harrowing of hell narratives at the end of this volume, and I'll remind listeners that many of the paintings that John Dominic Crossan examines in his book, Resurrecting Easter, treat precisely this narrative tradition in a very different medium. Uh, and you can listen to that talk on episode 129. But Bart, you note that in the history of this scene's iterations, the harrowing of hell, the editorial tendency has been to move away from universalism and towards a more limited atonement. So how do the texts of Gospel of Nicodemus exhibit this tendency? And how late does universalism hold on before the editors finally eradicate it? Yeah. So the Gospel of Nicodemus is one of these really wonderful uh, uh, Christian Gospels um, from the probably the fifth century. It, uh, it's it, there. There's a lot of work that needs to be done on the Gospel of Nicodemus. It's not well known. I, people don't read it. Uh, I've got a I've got a translation of it in my book on the other Gospels, but it's 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 also called the Acts of Pilate. So people might have heard of the Acts of Pilate or the Gospel. It's the same thing. But the Gospel of Nicodemus, the, originally there was a like an account of Jesus' trial and death and resurrection that was called the Acts of Pilate because it was told from Pilate's perspective. Uh, but then there was added to it a dissent narrative. A dissent narrative is an account of what, what Jesus descending, Jesus goes down to Haiti. So, you know, it's, as in the creed. Uh, he descended into hell, and that 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 um, the Gospel of Nicodemus is our first full narrative account of Jesus going down to Hades. And the question, and you get hints of it in the New Testament. And you know, the issue is, you know, what was Jesus doing? I mean, so he dies on a Friday and he rises on a Sunday. So what's happening to him in between? I mean, does he does he go up to see God for a while, or does he just like not exist for a while, or does he? And the idea developed that he was human, and so humans go to Hades. He had to go to Hades, but then the question arose: Well, what's he doing down there? Uh, and so there's developed tradition starting in the briefly in the New Testament, but then into the second, third, fourth centuries is well, uh, different options. Is he going down there in order to see what it's like? Is he going down there to preach the gospel? Uh, is he going down there in order uh, simply to assert his power over the realms of the dead? And so there end up being different traditions some of which Jesus goes down to preach. And then the question is, is he preaching to everyone or is he just telling the saints, the like the Old Testament saints or the pre-Christian saints about his salvation he's provided? Uh, and, or is he preaching to everybody to give everybody a chance? Or is he preaching to everybody? So, I mean, you know what, or is he not preaching? Is he going down there to assert his power to destroy the realms of the dead and the devil who controls them? And so the gospel of Nicodemus 
went through multiple versions, just as I said that the Apocalypse of Peter did. So did the uh, the Gospel of Nicodemus. We have lots of manuscripts of the Gospel of Nicodemus. This is a very popular text in the Middle Ages. It's one of these really popular texts that today nobody seems to know, but it was a very important text. And this concept of the harrowing of hell ultimately derives from it. So what I argue in my book is that the uh, of the various kind that we have several versions of it that, that scholars have reconstructed, and that if you line them up chronologically, the oldest versions of this text uh, are in fact Christ going down to hell and asserting Hades and asserting his power over the place, where he breaks the uh, gates of hell, he enters in, and it's a very interesting text because it's got this fictional component. Hades is uh, personified as a being, and you have the devil who's a being, and they have this conversation because Hades is really upset because the devil has killed the son of God and the son of God might come down here and save everybody. <laughs> and the devil says, no, don't worry about it. I got it covered. You know? <laughs> and so uh, Jesus comes out of Hades says, he's coming. <laughs> and I'll take care. He goes out and Christ just runs right over him. And then he breaks open Hades. And then, but in the oldest version, he takes everybody out and he closes down Hades, uh, which means nobody, everybody's saved and nobody can go there again. But over time, you start getting other versions of this account where, yeah, he doesn't take everybody out. He takes the saints out and he leaves everybody else. Or, you know, so there are variations on the theme. And so what I, one of the chapters, one of my chapters tries to explain how that works out over time, again, in a way that shows that this universalistic tendency that you find in parts of Christianity get uh, completely muffled by the later tradition so much so that it, virtually disappears. Right, right. Here at the end, I'd like to hear you talk about this book's big picture. I said at the top of the episode that to find out what an author really gets irritated about, read that author's treatments of the devil. So analogously, what do we learn about human minds and human communities uh, when we read about journeys to the afterlife? Well, I'll tell you what first got my interest in writing this book uh, some years ago. I had uh, I had long been interested in the Apocalypse of Peter uh, because, you know, it was the first one discovered. Everybody was really excited about when it was discovered in the 1880s, and there's all this scholarship on it. And um, the interesting thing about this uh, account of, uh, of, of Peter seeing the afterlife is that the descriptions of hell are quite detailed. There are 21 kinds of sinners and they're being all punished in different ways. And um, he has a much more extensive discussion of what's happening down in hell, much more extensive than what he says about heaven, which he just passes off in a couple sentences because, you know, it's great, weather's fantastic, nice trees bearing fruit, smells good, everybody's happy, they're up there with the saints and Christ, and so it's all good, but there's not much to say, right? It's just like eternal happiness. But the, the descriptions of the torments, oh my God, they get very lurid, and, and and so it's pretty clear what the point is. Like, if you don't, you know, if you don't, if you don't want the torment, but you want the glory, yeah, stop sinning. <laughs> and so, uh, but what, what some years ago, what piqued my interest is that, as I said a few minutes ago, the apocalypse of Paul, is a later, probably late fourth century uh, catabasis that uses as its model, the Apocalypse of Peter. Um, the Apocalypse of Peter ended up being shunted 
as I indicated, because of its probably because of its universalism. But the Apocalypse of Paul lived on through the Middle Ages and down to Dante. Uh, but what interested me is I started comparing comparing the torments in hell, and I realized that um, in the Apocalypse of Peter, the people being punished are sinners, they're you know adulterers and murderers and uh, disobedient children <laughs> and things and uh, uh, parents who expose their children uh, and commit infanticide, but all but also idolaters, makers of idols, persecutors of Christians, they're, they're among the, the most heavily punished. When you get to the Apocalypse of Paul, which is written after Christianity had, had been taking over the empire, it was about the time when they're, they're en route to take over the empire, uh, it's, it's, it's become more or less the uh, official religion of, the, of Rome, and you, do, you still have punishments for sins, but the idolaters aren't there, and the uh, persecutors of Christians and makers of idols, they're not there. Who are there are Christian bishops who have misbehaved, or other church officials who have misbehaved, or ascetics who have vowed to fast and they've broken their vows. And the worst punishments in, in the apocalypse of P uh, Paul, the worst punishments are reserved for heretics who say that Christ is not really, did not really come in the flesh. They are punished worse than the most hideous murderer, adulterer, whatever. The, these people have the wrong Christology. <laughs> and so, so it's just something like, I don't know why it didn't occur to me before, but all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, this is like, this is in a different context and it's expressing what this author's ultimate concerns are. So it's like the thing you were saying about the devil. Each of these authors is expressing his ultimate concerns about life by describing afterlife. And the, the, what happens after death shows you what matters now. And once I realized that, I realized it can apply to all of these texts, to the, to the Odyssey, to the Aeneid, to Lucian of Samosata, to the Acts of Thomas. To, it's like, and you do it. You apply, so what I do in this book is I apply it to these texts. I try and show how these accounts of the afterlife um, reveal what the author thinks is really important about how we live now. Very good. Well, Bart, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. Uh, what do you want our listeners thinking about catabasis, textual criticism, or anything else as we head for the door? Well, several, couple, two things. One is that, you know, there's a lot of stuff you can find on the internet uh, and a lot of it is good. Uh, a lot of it is terrible. <laughs> and uh, you should think about your sources of information for this kind of material because it does require some expertise uh, in order to, to understand it. So I recommend uh, really, um, you know, the value, you know, the internet is, you know, of course we use it all the time. We all do. And it's an, un it's unbelievable what we can do now with the internet. So that, that part's good. Uh, and so we all use it, but um, there, uh, the value of reading books that are written by established scholars that get published by reputable presses is that they reflect expertise that has been vetted. And it isn't just somebody kind of spouting off something they heard once. Uh, and so that, that's one thing. Second thing I'd like to say is um, 
Uh, I have a couple of things that uh, people might be interested. I don't know if your your listeners will know about these, but I, I have a blog, the Bart Ehrman blog, that where I talk about this stuff all the time. I, I post five times a week, 1,200, 1,400 words a day, five times a week. I've been doing it for 10 years without missing a week. And uh, people on uh, everything connects to the New Testament and early Christianity, everything, uh, or Greco-Roman religions or Hebrew Bible, et cetera. Uh, there's a small fee for joining. Uh, the blog, but the reason is because I give every penny away to charity. And so the blog is is used to support charities dealing with hunger and homelessness. And uh, we've raised uh, over a million and a half dollars, one and a half million dollars on this thing. And so I'd like people to think about looking at that. And if they're interested in this kind of stuff that I do on my courses, just apart from my blog, if they just check out my website, bartermin.com, they'll see I've got a, I, I give online courses and I, I do other things. They can see what the other kinds of access they can have to me besides my books. Bart Ehrman, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. This has been my pleasure. Thanks so much. Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in. The book is Journeys to Heaven and Hell, Tours of the Afterlife, in the Early Christian Tradition from Yale University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.